Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shaw & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. We're into season two already. How great is that? Last season, we sat down with 10 incredible Australians, and because of that, $100,000 was given to charities, all thanks to Shaw & Partners. We're gearing up for a second season full of heavy hitters and truly inspirational people. And so we wanted to kick it off with Deborah Lee Finesse. To me, Deb is the wife of my best mate. To the world, she's an amazing actress and wife to one of Hollywood's superstars, Hugh Jackman. But life wasn't always glitz and glamour for Deb. Deb grew up with just a mum as the kid who marched to the beat of her own drum. She took risks and moved to New York to pursue her dreams of becoming an actress, going from audition to audition and eventually found her way up the chain. She ended up starring in an Australian TV show that would change the path of her life because it was when she co-starred alongside the man that would later become her husband of 26 years as of a few weeks ago. In this chat, we also speak about Deb's family and why she is so passionate about children finding their forever homes through adoption. She has energy and a zest for life that's unrivaled and I think it's a big part of why Hugh is the man that he is today. As for all these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice for each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into the first episode of season two of Not An Overnight Success. G'day, Deb. How are you? G'day. I love you and g'day. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going? Great. We're over here. The sun's shining. It's bloody cold, but I like the cold weather, snow. We did grow up in Australia, but all the romantic movies, there was always snow. So I, I kind of like it. I like it too. And New York, what a city. And you've been there for a, quite a while now. Um, you call it home. What is it about New York and America that, that suits you and Huey so much? The first time I came here, when I was a young girl, I remember I was traveling around and I rang home to my mother and went, Oh my gosh, mum. I said, I finally found my city. I felt home the minute I arrived here. I think because of the energy of this city, I'm a little bit of the ADD. And I think everyone that comes to New York, everyone that's here, you don't come to New York if you want to sit back and chill. Everyone that comes here has an agenda, has a mission, wants to, wants to be involved, wants to be a part of the community. I, I love it. Jerry Seinfeld said, why is it we've got all this wide open land and yet Everyone wants to come and live in this city where we're like bumping into each other on the subway. So there must be something about the people that live here that we like being in community. And it's exciting. It's got, she's got a great personality. I think New York is, if, if she was a dinner date, you'd just want to keep going out. <laughs> I agree with you. And I do remember before we go into sort of your success as an actress, I, I do want to just say something about New York because Jacko mentioned to me years ago that that first time that you walked into Times Square and there was like a hundred meter or a hundred foot sort of poster of you, a, a billboard, what was that about? And what did that, how did that make you feel? Okay, so I came to, I was driving into New York because I'd just, I'd done press all over America for the film Shame that I had made. And as I'm coming back into New York, obviously this was my, my old stomping ground. This was my school. I was going to see my mates. 
So I'm driving through Times Square and they ne- they didn't say anything to me. And as I'm driving through Times Square, I'm like, oh, so good to be back. And I look up and this huge billboard and it's me in leathers looking like this tough chick standing in Times Square. And I was like, wow. And I rang, <laughs> I rang mum and I said, mum, it's amazing. There's a big billboard here. She said, take a picture. And I said, I haven't got a camera. She said, buy one. <laughs> Your mum, we'll talk about her a lot in the in the podcast as well. But Deb, what were you like as a as a kid? What was I called? Highly spirited. <laughs> my first report, or one of my report cards, was Deborah Lee has great leadership qualities. If only she would lead the children in the right direction. <laughs> and I have to say, recently I spoke to one of Ava's teachers and got my daughter got the same report. And I'm speaking on the phone and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll make sure. And I'll be secretly, I'm going, yes. Yeah, I I think as a kid, I was very curious, you know, so I was, you know, always getting into trouble, I guess, because I wanted to see everything, try everything. And I was very chatty. So I was sort of always in trouble at school for being the talkative one in class. So, and I remember, okay, one funny story was, you know, because I'd get bored, I I think that was economics or something. We had a new teacher come in. And so he came into the class and introduced himself and we all had to go around. And of course it came to me and I stood up and I had an American accent. Hi, I'm Deborah Lee and I'm from Vegas or wherever I was from. And the whole <laughs> class laughed, of course, because I was just, you know, I love to make people laugh. And the teacher goes, do not laugh at Deborah Lee just because she has a different accent. Blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, he kept saying to the, in the teacher's conference room, I tell you that American girl, she's hard to control. And they're all going... Who, what, what American girl? What is he talking about? <laughs> so I guess, you know, I kept myself entertained when I was bored in economics class. Good on you. So you grew up in Australia in Victoria. Yep. And your mum, I know in particular, is just a huge part of your life. But what was your family makeup as you were, as you were growing up? Well, because uh, I always felt different because I know all the kids used to have a brown paper bag with a Vegemite sandwich. I really wanted that. And I always got play lunch money because mum was a single mom. I was an only child. So she was, you know, working. So she was busy. So she'd always give me play lunch money. And I suppose I felt different because, you know, I didn't have the classic family, like, you know, three kids and the two parents. It was mum and me. Mm. But one thing I did that was a positive that came out of that was Australia at the time, you know, was quite misogynistic and quite chauvinistic. And here I was, the child of a woman who was a leader in the workforce. She was a strong, powerful woman. And contrary to what everyone else thought, I thought the chicks were in the show. So I sort of grew up with that attitude. And then it was only as I got older, I'm like, oh, these guys think they're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> So it sort of gave me a strength and she empowered me as a woman. Let's talk about your mum because, you know, I've met her, you know, a hundred times. Every time you're leaving, feeling like you've been with a a very, very positive energy and like a real angel. What was she like as a mum to you? Oh, God, don't make me cry. She was unbelievable. You know, I was the apple of her eye. I could do no wrong. I mean, she celebrated every win, whether it was getting my swimming certificate or was, you know, singing badly in that musical at school. You know, oh, you were the best, Deb. You know, it was always, she was so supportive. Even when I said to her, because it was always assumed that I was going to do law and that was what I was going to do. And then I said, Mum, I think I want to be an actor. Only because the kids at school, because I made them laugh, said you should be an actor. And I'm like, they pay you for doing that, for making people laugh? Like, this sounds like a good gig. And when, and I said to mum, I think I'd be actress. She goes, if that's what you want to do. She gave me that freedom, like if I want to pursue that. And she supported me. I, you know, I saved up and she helped me come over to New York where I came to study drama. 
but she was so kind and everyone, as you know, everyone called her mama. She had that energy of she was just anyone that came to our house felt warmth and love. She was like a big hug. You know, she was so respected in the workforce because she made sure everyone got a fair go and she was an extraordinary woman and I don't think it's now she's been gone five years and I still miss her terribly. But I don't think I credit her enough with how smart and why she was. Because, you know, as a kid, you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, mum. And, you know, like they never know anything and you know everything. And I realise now she was so wise. And all the things she said to me are now right, really sinking in. I'm trying to pass on to my kids. I love the fact that she just said, okay, if you want to be an actor, go and be an actor and backed you to do it. Yeah. Was it a tough choice for you to go away from sort of law or sort of a, in inverted commas, a, a proper job and, and go across the other side of the world to be an actor? Like, what was that like for you? Well, at the time, I'm like considered one of the early settlers because at the time, you know, I said to my friends, I, I, I'm, they're like, why are you going over to New York? And I'm like, why aren't you? It's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and I think back now, I mean, most people would be scared to do it or they thought it was a big deal. I was so excited. I thought this was the most amazing thing in the world I could do. So, no, I wasn't fearful of it. I think it was like the naive thing of youth. I'm just like, wow. I remember landing here and sort of going this huge city and it was very overwhelming and I was a little overwhelmed and scared when I got here, but it didn't take me long before I got my stride and became a sassy New Yorker. <laughs> and what was the sort of the college work or the actual work that you were doing? What was that like? Did you have, were you out of your comfort zone? Did you feel oh, comfy? Completely. Right. No. No, completely. Well, I came over and I auditioned and got and got into the into the school I wanted to go to. So I went back and then worked three jobs as a door bitch at the nightclubs in Melbourne's nightclub scene. But I was a terrible door bitch because I just let everyone in. <laughs> but so and then I came back and it was intense. Like it was like you're in a bubble of like it was all these people, but they'd come from all over the world and from all over America. This was the dream to come to New York and study drama at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So it was a big deal. Mm. Every you worked really hard. So I was, I think it was the first time ever I got all A's and I was committed because it was something I wanted to do. You know, maths and all that stuff just didn't turn me on. So I was very conscientious and I worked my butt off and I was completely out of my comfort zone, much to most people's horror. I don't think they quite realize this. I'm actually kind of shy. There's a part of me that's shy. I'm an extroverted, loudmouth, shy girl. I don't know if that makes <laughs> sense, but, yeah. but in certain ways, you know, like so to sort of put myself on the line, any artist who is a painter or a musician or an actor, it takes a lot of courage to say, I can do this. And you don't know until you put yourself out there. And every role that you step out to do is that. Can you do it? You don't know. So it takes a lot of courage. So I, it took a lot of strength, a lot of courage, and a lot of hard work to really say, call myself, yeah, I can say I'm an actor. Are you good at auditioning? Are you good at sort of remembering lines and all that sort of stuff? It horrifies me to the, now, if you ask me, I barely remember the shopping list when I go to the groceries. I used to almost have a photographic memory. I could look at a sheet and boom. I had it. I did a show, I did film something recently, a pandemic comedy on Zoom. What was great on Zoom, I could have my lines on the screen, so I sort of had a little backup. But no, I used to be, but I, I liked auditions because I, I think it, there was something, it's like jumping out of a plane. I liked the excitement of mm. diving in and just going for it. 
You said you're one of the first settlers, and, and you're right. Now, now, obviously, there's a lot of famous Aussies in all parts of the world, but how long was it before a few of your mates decided to, to come and, and, and some of those Aussies that you enjoyed time with in New York? Can you tell us about them? Well, I didn't actually have them in New York. In New York was a whole other world. I mean, literally, when I was here, Americans would say to me, Deb, you really picked up the, the language really quickly. They did not know about Australia. I'm sw- serious. I mean, it sounds like I'm from the Dark Ages, but it was literally... <laughs> Australia, I was this exotic foreign being and the other early settler was Anthony LaPaglia. Do you know Anthony? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He and I were sort of one of the first two to be here and I didn't run into Australians for a long time. It wasn't until later I studied here and then went back to Australia and worked there for many years and then went back to L.A., to Hollywood. So it wasn't until then we had the whole Gumleaf Mafia thing happening in L.A. with Nicole came to stay <laughs> and, you know, it was Tom Berlinson. There was a whole lot of us sort of like... It's like Vegas, you throw your hat in the ring and see what, what hits. And that it just sounds so exciting as you talk about that. Was it exciting and as much fun as it sounds or was there a lot of sort of hard work and good days and bad days, getting roles, not getting roles? What was that like for you? Well, as any actor, and I'm talking about the most successful actors, for an actor, you get rejection. I mean, Naomi Watts is a good friend of mine. I remember, you know, she, 10 years, she couldn't get arrested. It's persistence. You just, just got to hang in there. And like I would, in LA, I would like, I had a big Jeep and I'd like go out for the day. I'd have a nun's habit. I was a hooker, a nun, a, a, a mum, a this. I had a change of clothes in the back of the car and I'd just drive around going from audition to audition. And it's rejection after rejection. So you've got to be made of some sturdy stuff and you can't take it personally. It's like, you know, either you remind the director of what he thinks is a good idea or you don't or you, you gave a bad audition that day. you got to really thank God, like you, Gus, we have a strong sense of humour and don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. I just know from my brother's point of view, from screenplays, you know, just doing your best and then having someone rejected it, it's hard not to take that personally. I know because it's your baby. As I said, it take, it's courage as an artist. There's a great book for any artist that's listening, The War of Art, not The Art of War, The War, which is a war thing, which I don't like war, The War of Art. And it talks about what it is to be an artist and how you have to lay yourself out there. And one line he said in the book, which I thought was amazing, he said it was easier for Hitler to start the Second World War than to stare at a blank canvas. Meaning, you know, that was who he thought he was, this artist. And it was like the courage it took to do that. And I just thought that was an amazing analogy of this man. Let's talk about you come back to Australia and one particular uh, ABC TV show changes your life and changes someone very dear to my life as well. Just tell us about that moment when you first met here. Because I went back to, I was going between Hollywood and Australia a lot. So I was like, I was lucky I had another playground to play in. So I was working in Hollywood and I was also working in Australia. So I was back and forward. And I remember I came, I, yeah, I think I'd had it with Hollywood and I saw a psychic and she said, you have to go back to Australia. Just don't question me. You have to go back. I mean, this is a psychic, but I was also, I was yeah. <laughs> in, I was ready to make a shift. So I, and I came back and it literally, everything that this psychic said came true. Like the work was in abundance and I kept working. And then I got this show Corelli and they told me this guy, Jack Human was going to be my co-star. I've never heard of him and I could never remember his name. And there, and I, I didn't know him, well, obviously, because this was his first gig out of drama school. So I just met him as my co-star the first day 
And I thought, oh, he seems nice. And and yeah, well, the rest is history, as you know. But we had an incredible connection from the get-go as uh, like we just recognized each other. And I, I feel blessed, you know, that you meet someone in your life that feels like you're meant to share your life together. And that's what it was. But we were, you know, it took us a while to get there romantically because I was being very professional. But it was obviously there was such, you know, there was such a connection though and like to play with him as an actor was like the best tennis match. You know, we just spoke the same language and it was, you know, it was magic. And then I remember three months after when the show was on air, Hugh and I were together at that stage. We went to the supermarket and the checkout chick said, I knew it was too good to be acting. Of course, I was over in England and he was phoning me saying, there's this, there's this lady, you know, there's this girl. And I'm like, don't fall in love with another lead actress because he had done it pretty much since fourth form and fifth form at school. And I could oh, really? name that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he's like, no, no. She's like, she said, he's, she's like you in a dress. She's like Sagittarian. She just, <laughs> she's really funny. And she's, and I'm like, well, she sounds great to me, but just be careful, you know. And that's a bloke who... You know, known him all his life, but I was living in England. He was obviously starting off in Australia and doing his best. But it was pretty obviously early on that he felt something for you, but he didn't, he didn't quite know how to, you know, make that next move. Did you feel that intensity? Did you feel that nervousness from him? Yeah, but initially I was like, oh my goodness, this is just cliche, you know, falling for your leading man. And he's this younger guy and he's like, he's about to start his huge career. And I tried to back off. And so he was not tentative. He was like, no. He could see that I was a bit scared and he was like, you're not going anywhere. So he took the (laughs) reins and was like, no, this is the way it's going to be. I love it. And then he proposed. It was four months after we started dating, he proposed. And it was like a no I mean, it was just the first time ever I'd known what it was like to be in love. Oh, it's so beautiful. And still are. Yeah, well, that's the great that's the great thing about it. And I suppose I want to, I wanted to talk a little bit now about you know the fact that people do say you know that the age gap and all that sort of stuff. Like I've never known you guys even to have a argument. Certainly not in front of me. And arguments have nothing to do with age. <laughs> Believe me, I know. And he is just let's be clear here. He is the mature one in the relationship, as you know. That- I do know that for sure. How do you cope with crap in the paper? I must have sat at Coles 10 times and read the front cover of New Idea or something like that saying that you guys are, you know, in trouble and all that sort of stuff. On the rocks? Yeah, like it's just how, how do you cope with that? I'm a big Pollyanna and I'm like, I'm like, how can people just make this up? It just amazes me that these magazines continue to get away with it and what they're selling is schadenfreude. They are selling misery. People must be wanting to buy that other people are miserable or terrible because it makes them feel better about themselves. But that's what these magazines are selling. You rarely see a nice story about happy, you know, everyone's happy and blah, blah, blah. And I heard recently, and I won't say names, of a a big star, you know, very big, you know, self-assured star. He was getting a lot of flack said about him and it was really hurtful. I don't think as a human being if you read something, and especially if it's a lie, and it's, it's slander that it doesn't affect you and hurt you. I'm like, how can these people say this? Mm. When you're a celebrity, you're so open slather to people wanting to say negative things. I mean, Hugh's been gay for whatever. I mean, hello, guys. If he was gay, he could be gay. He didn't have to hide in the closet anymore. Yeah. And he'd be dating Brad Pitt or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not that Brad's gay, but you know, but you know what I'm saying? Yes. No, but I'm saying it's so silly and then people – 
perpetuate silly things and it's it's boring Hugh and I don't to be honest it's only when we sort of it comes across us but we don't read a lot of that stuff we, we're unaware I mean we'll be out and I go what are those people looking at I'm like oh yeah you're famous I mean we forget <laughs> you know it's like it's just not our world just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast and that is Shaw and Partners Financial Services Sure and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Sure and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at sureandpartners.com.au. That's S H A W for sure. Sure and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. Well, of course, because you're both so normal as well. You know, that's what I love about you is that you do live this wonderful life. I don't know about normal, Gus. Is anyone normal? You got any normal? <laughs> the new normal. Uh, think about it. The new normal, in inverted commas, I suppose. But you know what I mean. In the beginning when people say stuff, I'm like, oh, that's outrageous. You want to fight back. But now I just, whatever. People know it's just, you know, ridiculous. Let's talk about your two beautiful kids because one of them is my godson and and there's Ava as well who came came around a couple of years later. What's that like being a mum, that role that you have in your life? I always knew I was going to be a mum. Well, I had the best role model. I love it. I love what it teaches me. But, I mean, it's literally a challenge daily. It's a challenge daily. You've got to really have your senses about you to deal with their insecurities with their fears and like all of us we all have our fears and doubts and whatever and when you're younger you haven't got the knowing of being a bit older and wiser that it's not everything's dramatic so you know everything's cataclysmic this is the end of the world so you really have to be smart in the way you support them without being too in their face I used to suffer a bit of the helicopter mom I was like you know like when they were little, I you know, see a homeless person on the street and Deborah Lee Pollyanna living in Disneyland. I go, he's really tired. He's just having a nap. And then they would say to me, Mom, it's a homeless person. So I tried to buffet them from all that. You can't. You have to just be open. And they teach me so much. And these kids, what is amazing now, I see with both of my kids, they are so aware of the world and like I can't have a, a drink with it's got a plastic thing around it Ava will go crazy at me like they're so conscious about the planet which is obviously they should be and maybe they should have a chat to ScoMo so that he could maybe come on board a bit more <laughs> I'm not getting political but let's just say you know climate change is a big issue they are so conscious of it and so wanting to step up you know and very outspoken about social justice so I'm really proud of them in that way I don't think I don't think I would have been as aware at that age I was just sort of like going dancing I'm learning stuff from Oscar all the time like every time I look at him on social media then I'll send him a little note and I'll ask him to explain stuff because I just don't get it I, I don't live in that world no but he's length his ex, the extent of his knowledge is he's quite remarkable he's got a very high IQ and he's a talented artist he's really working at his art these days and the injustice he sees in, in the world, and he's opening my eyes up to it. Like, I think the Godfather is meant to be the spiritual leader for the <laughs> Godson, but I think it might be the other way around with uh, with him. He really is very in touch with all those height of emotions. He's a, a very interesting guy. Yeah, I can say an interesting guy now. He's a grown-up, 21. I know, he's beautiful. I want to go down a couple of avenues with you. One, obviously, around adoption, and then the other one, you know, being a wife of Hugh Jackman, who obviously is this huge, big star. How easy was it for you, Deb, to go, you know what? He's, he's going to go this direction. I'm going to do something slightly different, as well as obviously acting. What was it like for you to see his, 
you know, just huge rise in terms of success and um, being an A-lister. I saw that before we got married, just so you know. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) I knew that that was the trajectory and I told Hugh that was the trajectory. It was like the the beginnings of it was so exciting because we were sort of on to get like, oh, my gosh, wow, and Wolverine happened and it was all exciting. It's big. It's a lot because all of a sudden I don't think it's comfortable for anyone to have the world looking at you. You know, like all of a sudden you get to a certain level of fame and the world is interested in you. The world wants to know every detail about you. I don't think I will ever get comfortable with that. And Hugh, I think, is blissfully unaware, not unaware of it, but he he doesn't take it on. He doesn't, like, you know, he just, he's doing the work, takes it in his stride. But yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's that's been our experience. We've sort of grown up together with it. So it's been like a slow to rise thing. So we've gotten more and more used to it and more comfortable with it. And I think talking to Jacko, having you as sort of his main person in his life, it's helped him so much keep himself grounded and keep himself focused. Because when people talk about Jacko and say, what's he like? I go, well, just what you imagine, that's exactly what he's like. And then they meet him eventually and they go, oh, he's even better than I thought, you know, and that, uh, that, that comes naturally to him because he's always been loved, but he's gone through a huge change, but he's had you there to ground him and to sort of help him and support him. I think with any person out there, and especially in the arts when you're so vulnerable and put yourself on the line, to have a partner that can share it with you and especially a partner like, I, you know, I made movies for 20 years so I know what it's like so I have an understanding you know we both keep ourselves you know we're very open in our relationship we share all our vulnerabilities and all that stuff so having someone there is just a gift I must admit Deb when I suppose about five or ten years into you guys I'm just like he doesn't need me as a best friend anymore because he's actually that was my insecurity because he's got his best friend and his partner and I say to people in the chats for gotcha for life I go if you've got someone in your life that is your partner, your lover, as well as the person you can talk to about everything, then you've won the jackpot. Because even if you love and adore your partner, there are some things that you may just want to talk to a mate about or a professional about. But he's got that in you. And I got a little jealous. He also has a special relationship. Like, I love that you guys, like, you check in every week and you have your blokey conversation. There's stuff that you guys talk about that's different. You know, I like with my girlfriends, we all – there's so much, there's room for all of us. Like I will talk to girlfriends about stuff that I wouldn't necessarily talk to Hugh about just because he'd get bored. <laughs> but, you know, I think the rug should go over here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I love that we have different, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a best friend. They're the fabric that's relationships. I love that. Yeah, it's the village. You know, we're building yeah. a village around us and we need all these. It takes a village. Correct. What's it like when you're doing a love scene in a movie and Jacko's watching and vice versa? How do you, because that's the one question everyone asks me is like, how do they cope when they're kissy kissy with a, their co-star? It's so weird. I suppose because I've done it so many times before, it's not really romantic. I mean, you've got the gaffer over your head with, you know, you know and you've got the light <laughs> in your face and you've got to hit a mic and so... It's not really sexy. When I'm sitting in the theatre watching, especially if I'm with the kids, I feel a little uncomfortable. But also a lot of the times I'm very good friends with the actress that he's making out with, you know, because we're making a film where we get all get to know each other. Mm. But, yeah, sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it's weird seeing it. And I think the kids sort of like, oh, Oscar's like, <laughs> doesn't want to watch. But it's become second nature, I suppose, and you realise it's just a, a job and you crack on with it. Yeah, and I, when you secure a relationship, that's just all fluff, you know. It's just all 
fluff. Who are your best mates in terms of of Hollywood or people that people would know from, you know, listening to us now? Who are the people that you know that you're just like, oh, I love hanging out with them? Because when Jacko goes, oh, Deb and I are having Jerry over or something, I know that's Jerry Seinfeld. That to me is still ridiculous, you know what I mean? You're hilarious. Or your good friend John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, or JT. I like the, it's, JT. You know, good mates call him JT, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Well, you know, I know all the Aussies, all the Aussies. And, okay, well, tonight we've got Hugh's uh, – ex-wife in the last movie he made, Laura Dern's coming up for dinner, <laughs> and Bradley Cooper because, well, he lives around the corner. So, I mean, they're actors and they're in our scene. So we're in New York. So, you know. I love it. That's what I love about New York. Like when you're in, in LA, I think we're all in the industry. In New York, like our other best friend's an oncologist, you know, and or a mime artist, you know, or a builder. You know, there's such diversity here. So we're not, we don't just hang out, you know, with celebrities. We artists oncologists, neurosurgeons. That's New York. <laughs> always interesting times at your dinner table. I, I, I love, it's always fantastic. You can sit next to anyone and you know you're going to have fun. But that's what I love about New York, exactly. You, you never know who, what's going to happen. I start my day in New York, I never know what's going to happen. Like I just have, like tonight we'll have, and I've got all the kids here and I love that they get to meet interesting people. Like I had a neurosurgeon here last week who was talking about these amazing things and that's what's great about being in the epicentre of people that are doing things in the world. Where do you see your next sort of 20 years, Deb? Will you be acting again if the right role comes up? What do you see as your future? I don't think I'll be able to remember the lines. <laughs> I have to say the acting isn't my driving passion. Like I did it a few weeks ago. A friend wrote a, that series for me and I did it and it was fun. At the moment, I'm writing a screenplay uh, with Rebecca Rigg, another Australian, and we're writing a screenplay about intergenerational trauma. And I'm literally doing this because the subject really fascinates me. And I think trauma is the zeitgeist at the moment. I think we've all experienced trauma and I don't think all of us are as aware. It doesn't have to be capital T trauma like you're in a war zone of Syria. It could be you were the kid in school that never got asked to, you know, when you put your hand up and it shut you down for the rest of your life. I mean, there's all different levels. So I'm fascinated how that impacts us mentally, physically, and emotionally. And I remember someone said, if you're going to make a film, don't make it about something you know, make it something about what you want to learn about. So I'm getting to interview a lot of neurosurgeons and trauma people and and it's fascinating. And it's it, a lot of people think it's sort of still woo-woo, but there's science to it. There is really science to what we inherit emotionally from our forebearers, like our grandfather. Maybe I don't like capers because my great-grandfather choked on a caper. You know, like it could be it could be something like that. So anyway, so I'm writing the screenplay because I really, my I've just finished one bucket list thing. I designed and built a house from scratch out in this month's Architectural Digest, <laughs> which I love the process. I think design and art is my true passion. So I'm designing something at the moment. I'm doing a whole line of dinnerware, which I'm designing. I'm writing the screenplay. I'm painting. And obviously I've got my two foundations, Adopt Change in Australia and Hopeland here in New York. So there's, I'm, you know, very much involved with everything going on there. I feel very fulfilled, you know, in what I'm doing. So, but yeah, but to get this up, my other bucket list to build a house from scratch, but to direct a, a feature length film, dream. So that's what I'm in the process of trying to, trying to achieve right now. I just don't know how you have all the energy to do it, to be honest with you. That's a lot. I have a lot of energy. You do. I know, I just have energy. 
Let's talk about adoption because that's a huge part. I think you should have been Australian of the Year. You nearly were. You were New, ah. you were New South Wales Australian of the Year, but go New South Wales. Go New South Wales. But you actually, you actually changed the law in this country. Like you changed the way that things are done. Could you give us an understanding of your passion behind adoption and why you were so passionate and why you did what you did? I did what I did because when Hugh and I started out, we wanted to adopt and we we started out in Australia and I couldn't believe how the service just was not giving us answers and then we had to wait months to go to a meeting then we went to this meeting and it was so negative and I saw these hopeful parents there wanting to, you know, parent a child and the hoops you had to jump through were ridiculous. I mean, body mass index and this and your past sex life. This is how crazy it was. And I just went, this is nuts. And, I mean, I didn't even pursue it in Australia because it was so, I could just see it was going to be years of bureaucracy and it just was not made easy. Anyway, as it happened, we moved overseas and I ended up adopting my children overseas. But because of that, when I'd come back to Australia, so many people that wanted to would say, why can't we do it here? And I went, yeah, why is that? I had travelled the world. I had seen how many children would benefit from a loving family. I can see all these people here wanting to parent a kid, kids needing parents, but no, they're stuck in orphanages where children do not thrive or in foster care and we can't bring it together. And then I uncovered that there was an anti-adoption culture in Australia, which Bronwyn Bishop did in 2005, and that was within the system as well. People say, why is that? And it was because of past practices. Women 50s, 60s, 70s were forced to relinquish kids, their babies, because it was out of wedlock and there was a lot of shame put on these women. They were not given support. It was handled appallingly. Also, it gets confused with the stolen generation. That was theft, nothing to do with adoption. It just sort of, you know, rollercoasted into this negativity and system that was broken and didn't work. And plus, I think that part of the service was a very small part that was under resource, under service. So there was no passion to put into making this want to happen. And so it started out speaking like that because I just saw it as an injustice. And the ones that were not getting the fair deal were the kids. They were the ones that stuck in foster care and the trajectory of kids, these kids that go from placement to placement, these transitions are traumatic every single time. The trajectory is drugs, we know the scenario, drugs, alcohol, sexual abuse, violence, domestic, end up in jails. It's terrible. So I hate injustice, which takes me back to why I wanted to be a lawyer, but didn't quite put that. But so I suppose I'm putting those skills into practice now mm. with the injustice of a system that is broken. So we started, i got to tell you guys, I was at it for 10 years with so little traction, so little traction. I'd meet prime minister after prime minister. They couldn't shift it. Even if I got them on board, they couldn't move this behemoth. Cut to we're 13 years in. We just had a huge summit. We have the best speakers from all over the world come in and speak, and they give us solutions that we take to Parliament. Now, we now have friends of adoption in Parliament, parliamentary friends of adoption, whereas we had no friends for years, didn't want to know about us. So now we take all the recommendations that we do the research for at these big conferences, take it to the policymakers and help to advise them how to change policy. Kids are getting out of foster care sooner and the biggest thing that we've made is that people realise permanency is everything. Transitions for a child, orphanages. I mean, people think, oh, yeah, they're needed. Children don't thrive mentally, physically, emotionally. I've seen a kid in an orphanage in Cambodia, literally I thought it was a six-year-old, it was a 15-year-old. He physically didn't grow. 
the damage that is done, the trauma that is caused these children, and they end up in jail. And guess what? They're re-traumatized. We're punishing these kids for their trauma. And that's why the trauma interests me. This is a big thing. We need to look at why people behave badly, and it's usually because of trauma. Like our big recommendation this year is that all teachers ed, that that includes training our teachers who are with our children all day If a child is being naughty, don't punish it. Why is that child being naughty? To have the education to recognise trauma. And this doesn't just mean adopted kids. It's kids that may be experiencing domestic violence at home, sexual abuse, whatever, so that these teachers can flag it and not punish them and cause worse behaviour. We need to know all of us are traumatised, every single one of us. We've all had something in our lives. So let's be compassionate. Let's understand it. So these are things that, you know, we've brought up and we've brought to the forefront and we're hoping to change. And I hope that, you know, one day there's no need for adoption. I mean, everyone says I'm pro-adoption. I'm not. I'm pro a child being in a permanent loving family. If they can stay within their birth family, that's the best solution. So we have to support the birth family so that they've got the tools. Because a lot of these families that can't handle it uh, are families that they themselves have grown up maybe with drug addict parents or intergenerational trauma. It just repeats generation after generation and we need to stop that. So do you think we're getting there? Do you think there's a a positive spin? Do you feel now sort of bullied that you can get there? It's a behemoth to change it on the globe, you know, and our numbers are terrible. i got to say Australia is one of the lowest in our numbers for adoption and placing children. There's 46,000 kids at the moment in out-of-home care in Australia. It's a big fight and we need everyone to come on board and everyone, the more everyone understands the issue and can see what the solutions are, the more with anything and changing something, it takes a long time. We've been out of 13 years, you know, we just got to keep fighting the good fight and get there. My dad says to me when we took on the mental fitness stuff, he goes, it's like turning around the QE2. He said, it's going to take yeah. generations. Do you, said, Do you know how long it takes to turn around the QE2? And I said, um, no, obviously I don't. And he goes, well, it's eight nautical miles, which he said basically takes nearly a day. So he said, that's what you're taking on. I said, well, that's what we're taking on because that's I'm in for the fight. How, how do you keep going, Deb? Because I've been going five years with Gotcha for Life and mental fitness and, and suicide prevention. How do you keep the energy and how do you balance being a wife, a mother, and someone who's actually on the forefront of a very, very big subject and also keep your own sanity and your own life going? How, how do you balance that up? I wasn't at one stage, I, and it, it, but you, you have to have the pa- number one, and you've got it, you've got to have the passion to want to shift it. That's the only thing that's going to make it sustainable. If you haven't got that knee-jerk, empathic response to the issue, you're not going to be able to keep it going. So I have that. I, I feel strongly I can't bear to think of a child being alone or being vulnerable. So that's there. But I've lost my mojo many times. Too. I'm like, oh, I'm getting nowhere. And every time that it'll go like I just can't take it anymore, some opportunity will present itself. So I feel like there is a bigger picture. Someone's using me and putting something like I go, okay, here's an opportunity and I get back into the game and I get excited and do that. So that is a bigger picture driving me. And also, and you have to be smart. And I was not juggling well at one stage and I was trying to do it all and we were traveling. And like I was doing board calls because of the time difference in Australia at like two in the morning. And I had, I, th- I can't do this. So now I'm very smart. I have conferences. I've changed how it works. I speak to our CEO. We have our big meetings and whatever. And I can 
do that. I've changed the terms and how I operate and give what I do best. I'm not good at the minutia of details. I don't think that's your area of governance and, you know, <laughs> talking details with politicians. I'm big picture gal. I've been smart and I've said, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. This is the best way to get out of me what I've got to give. So I've found a really good balance for that part of my life so that I can be the artist, I can be the mom, I can be the wife, I can do all that. It's a juggling act. And it's not just me, it's every every woman and man out there, we're trying to juggle our family and our professional lives and our social life. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, when I talk to guys and girls, now people are just saying, I don't know how I can play every role as well as I want to. That's the problem. I do really good at work, then I'm suffering at home. If I am put more time in at home, then work opportunity misses me. It's hard to get the balance right. But you've got to not be hard on yourself either. When you fail at one, because we beat ourselves up, you've got to go, oh, this is not, just be pragmatic about it. Oh, this is not working. I need to pull back here, go there. It's a juggling act. You, it's, you know, people ask me, fill out the form, what do you do for a living? I'm a juggler. You know, that's <laughs> it. I'm a juggler. <laughs> okay, Deb, we're coming up to near the end, but you know, could talk to you forever and cannot wait to be in New York with you guys next year. Just one more thing before I finish with the with the fast five questions, which is our little fun way of ending. Deb, it always amazes me that Jacko always calls you out if you're in the crowd at whatever event that you're at. And it's obvious to everyone how much he loves and adores you. The girls go, oh, and the blokes go, oh, God, mate, come on, please. Could you be any better? Is that still awesome for you to have that call out when you're in the crowd watching him do something live? Well, you talk about grounding. It grounds him too. Like he needs – like that's a grounding thing. And, yeah, it just – I I know when he does that that he's feeling safe, he's feeling good. I'll never forget – when he did the Oscars. I mean, that was a huge deal. It's like the world is watching. You've got the whole of Hollywood there. I think I was more nervous in here. I was like, you know, heart palpitations. And when he came out the first time and he did his normal thing to me, I thought, oh my God, he's okay. It's like, we. and in this massive, you know, everyone's looking, we have an intimate moment. It's really special. That was so great. And your mum's been at a few of those intimate moments too. Like, Mum came for all the rides. She was there for the whole ride. And Jacko, <laughs> as you know, Jacko and mum were the best of friends. They would make each other laugh like nobody's business. No, I, I love that relationship. You know, that was a very, very strong relationship for him and very close to sort of my mum's relationship with him, which was just so yeah. lovely yeah. to see and that total love and trust between them. Let's finish with the, with the Fast Five. Well, fast Five, I love a game. Okay, here we go. Your favourite holiday destination, Deb? Parakeet in the Turks and Caicos. Oh. It's the Caribbean. Right. That sounds good. <laughs> it's the, the most beautiful blue water you've ever seen. Oh, nice. And white sand. It's gorgeous. Have you got a quote, a favourite quote that you love or that you live by? Oh, God, I'm a quote girl. I am so full of quotes. And, of course, you put me on the spot and I can't remember one. I just posted one. Hang on. Oh, I like this by Winston. And the headline is Failure. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Yeah, I like that. We could all do with a dose of Winston. We love Winston. What's your favourite movie? Well, going back, it has to be The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. I think I watched it like 25 times. (laughs) What's your favourite movie that you've done and what's your favourite movie that Jacko's done? Shame would be the, my favourite movie where I played the murder and I, my daughter saw it recently so it's good she gets to see her mum being a badass um, riding a <laughs> motorbike. And I think Hugh's greatest performance would be Les Miserables. Yeah. He was unlucky not to win an Oscar on that one. Stolen. Stolen. For, I thought he he was magnificent in that. I think it's 
uh, one of his best performances, and there's been a lot of good ones. Yeah. Prisoners, the other day I rewatched that again. I didn't realise how brutal that is and how good he is in that. Erskineville Kings is one that I loved. I think he was – that was his first film, and I <sighs> think he was brilliant in that. And people don't realise it's so far from him too, you know. Yeah, it couldn't be more He's different. Very- yeah. When you watch Jacko's movies, I know that you'd normally get to see them first and you and Irving, who's a great friend of both of you, you know, you were in New York for a long time together, you'd go to things and you'd come back and you'd give an honest appraisal of, of performances and movie and stuff. How important is that for you to keep that honesty with him as an actor uh, rather than be the, you know, the supportive wife necessarily? Oh, no, totally. You know, I, we're always completely honest with each other. But you know what? He's... It's rare that I've seen him make a bad move. I mean, you know, I said when he did the front runner, playing Gary Hart, the senator, he was brilliant. I know when I can relax and enjoy the movie that he's doing his job because I'm not watching Hugh do it. I'm like, oh, cool. Oh, this dude, what's he doing? Oh, you know, so no, yeah, no, we're completely, no, we'll tell each other for sure. Yeah, I love that. Favorite book, and are you a reader? I'm not, a, I think. I'm not a reader because I have this thing. I think I've got a learning disability. I read two pages and I just fall asleep. <laughs> I can't read. So thank God for audibles. Now I love my audibles. I have to say most recent favourite book was the Oprah Winfrey-Bruce Perry collaboration, What Happened to You. I recommend, again, it's about trauma because that's what I'm interested in now. I recommend that everyone read this book. I, th- I think it was just amazing and so insightful beautiful i don't read a lot of fiction i'm always wanting to gain knowledge and yeah yeah so how do you how do you relax um i did that in the 80s i think i relaxed i don't really do a lot of it no but how i hugh and i do love our sunday nights or when we get a chance to sit down and eat dark chocolate have a cup of tea and watch netflix yeah i'm really into succession at the moment and the morning show well, Succession, I got too late because you guys told me years ago to watch and it somehow escaped me. So good. And there's an Australian actress in there. I didn't even know she was Australian. I'm like, who is this chick? Sarah Snooks. Yeah, Siv. Shiv, yeah, Sarah Snooks. She's so good. Oh. This girl, she's from Adelaide. And so sexy. Yeah. Oh, she's amazing. And she's married to a dope. I don't understand that relationship at all. Oh, it, no one does. It, but <laughs> it's so bizarre, isn't it? That's what I love about these characters. Who are you people? Last question is your favourite charity because Shore and Partners who are sponsoring this podcast are offering $10,000 to every guest to give to their charity of choice. So uh, you can split it up if you want or you can give the 10000 to one. Who would you like to give that to, Deb? It'd have to be Adopt Change. Yeah, beautiful. What will Adopt Change do with $10,000? What's uh, an example of how they spend their money? Okay, we spend our money. Well, we have a lot of volunteers and people there. We provide backpacks for the kids that are transitioning. They get a backpack with toothbrush, with a you know a cuddly toy, a blanket. You know, people knit blankets. We can provide wool for them. We have services. We come in uh, with our online lounge classes. We have yoga teachers, whatever we have. It's put to work by providing services. You know, the advocacy we're doing is changing the world. So. It is totally put to good use. Beautiful. Well, I imagine for $10,000, that's a lot of backpacks. So a lot of kids will be going into their new experience with something that is their own. It's really important that they have something that's theirs. Oh, Deb. It, it, it is so lovely to see you down the line. I wish I could jump through the screen and give you a big, a big hug. So thanks for joining us on Not An Overnight Success and it's been an absolute pleasure. Go give Jacko a big cuddle and, and the kids, of course, and we'll see you soon. 
Thanks, guys. It was great talking to you. Well, that was Deborah Lee Finesse. And what I really enjoyed about Deb was, well, a whole lot of things. We could have chatted forever, which is pretty much what I say about all our guests. But I suppose it was like, I don't know, it's jealousy, envy. And I don't mean that in a way that's sort of nasty. But it was like we both sort of shared that moment where, you know, we both love Jacko so much. I've obviously loved him since the age of five. And she adores him and has been the most wonderful person for him for the last 26 years. So, I don't know, it was just great to share that sort of moment together and to talk about that type of stuff that you wouldn't normally talk about. But there's so much in Deb that I love and adore and it was just lovely to be able to have a proper chat to her. Coming up next in the episode of Not An Overnight Success is one of Australia's favourite celebrity chefs and restaurateurs. His name is Matt Moran. Matt is a country kid who has dominated the chefing and restaurant world. He worked his way from dreaming of being on the deep fryer to owning and operating some of the best restaurants in Australia, even in the world. Matt speaks candidly about what it takes to be successful in the industry, as well as his relationship with people like Gordon Ramsay that have come along in his lifetime. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.